All right. Philemon. For those of you who can't find the index page, there is, uh, in the Pew Bible, I believe it's page 1101. 1101. So if you need a page number, there you go. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of those paperback Bibles in the pew back right in front of you. And if you don't own one, take that home. That's our gift to you this morning. There is no greater gift on a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning than the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Some of us love the Word of God. Come on. Amen for the Word of God. All right. Philemon chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Please follow along and have your eyes on Scripture. At the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the Word of the Lord. And because we are thankful to God for His Word, you can respond with thanks be to God. Philemon chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Please direct your attention to the screen. The Apostle Paul writes in Philemon chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Have you ever been wronged? Do you have trouble with forgiving? How do I deal with the past? Journey with us as we look at the aged apostle and what the Word of God teaches us on freedom, friendship, and forgiveness through our study of the New Testament book, Philemon. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here, and we start a new sermon series, and we start a new book of the Bible today. And so it's just crazy to me that I get to do this um, for a living and teach through books of the Bible. And the saying's true. When you find what you love, you really don't work a day in your life. And so we love God's Word, and so primarily we just teach through books of the Bible. And so we're looking at this New Testament book. It is the shortest book in the Bible, but it does pack a powerful punch. And so before we start this, maybe this will help um, with the framework. Is anybody familiar with the sporting event, the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, right? Right? So I'm the youngest of four boys, so I love sports and everything like that. And so this is, this is like modern-day gladiators, man. This is like boxing, kickboxing, everything rolled up in one. But the CEO of the UFC, it's a multi-billion-dollar business, is this man, Dana White. And um, what I love about the event is not really like the event itself, but is the press conference and the weigh-in the day before the event. And here's what, maybe you remember sort of like Iron Mike when they had the press conferences, and the fighters do what's called the face-off. And so they get together, and they put their dukes up and make this happen. But sometimes um, Dana White has to get in between these guys because they are like ready to go at it, you know what I mean? And sometimes it ends up being like that, and it gets a little bit rowdy sometimes. 
And so he literally sometimes may get a blow to the face or something because these guys are ready to go at it. And you're like, Jason, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible or anything? Well, if I, and, and, and this is just the way my mind works, so I, I believe ADD is a spiritual gift or anything like that. So if I were to describe to you what is the book of Philemon about, what does it look like, it's like that. Meaning, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to New Testament believers who are at a house church. There is a gentleman by the name of Philemon who is very well off. And Philemon had a fellow worker, which in those ancient days was known as a slave. And we'll get into ancient slavery and what that looks like. Who stole some property, probably some money from him, and ran away. But here's what's crazy. In God's sovereignty, the Apostle Paul is also in a Roman prison at the time. And guess where this guy named Onesimus ends up? In jail next to the Apostle Paul, right? So Philemon, this guy comes to know the Lord under the Apostle Paul's ministry. The Apostle Paul is in a prison cell with this guy named Onesimus. And they get to talking and then Paul realizes what's taking place. And here's what happens. The Apostle Paul puts himself in between two people that are at odds with each other. There's issues of forgiveness that are taking place. There are issues of friendship. How do we deal? How do we work with all of these things? And these are some of the questions that we're going to be answering in the series. But before we ever start a book of the Bible, we always have to build our context, right? We just don't open it up and then start reading and doing that. We have to understand. We say this all the time. The Bible was not written to you, but it is written for you, meaning it didn't just drop out of the sky, okay? So it's written by real people in real context and real time. So let's dive in and build a little bit of the context. God forbid we learn something about the Bible on Sunday morning. That'd be crazy, right? So who is the author of this letter? Well, let's look in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Any questions about who is writing the letter? Right? The Apostle Paul. So this guy, um, just phenomenal testimony. He went from hating Christians, actually persecuting Christians, being like a headhunter at Christians, to meeting Jesus and writing a third of the New Testament. So this guy is just incredible story, goes around preaching the gospel, planting churches, and he is the author of this letter. And who's he writing it to? He's writing it to the gentleman named Philemon, but it is in the region of Colossae and Ephesus. So the reason why the book of Philemon is not known as much because you really can't find studies on just Philemon. Because if you, bought, if you bought like a commentary or a Bible study, it would come with the books of Colossians and Ephesians. Because Paul is writing to a house church in that general area. And so this is during Roman times where Caesar is ruling all of the land. And the Apostle Paul is writing to these people. The date and time is around 55 to 58 A.D., now, the reason why I have to do all of this is because it's 2018, you have an iPhone in your pocket, and you're like, is this preacher really real? I don't believe any of this stuff. Because you watched a five-minute YouTube video of a guy who lives in his mom's basement who said the Bible isn't true, okay? So we've got to do a little work about some of this stuff, all right? And so this actually is one of the least contested books in the Bible, and it comes from what they call the Mertarian Fragments. 
So we have fragments of original letters and copies passed down that make up our Bible. And so this is one of the most well-preserved books of the Bible that we actually have. But why? Why do we have it? I mean, in my English Bible, it's, it's 25 verses. I mean, really? Is there like, can we get to Romans, Acts, right, a gospel, something like that? Why this letter? Well, the purpose that we will come to understand in this letter is this fact, that the gospel frees us to forgive other people. Now, I know you're probably nothing like me at all. You don't struggle with forgiveness. You've never been hurt in the past. You don't struggle in your marriage, and your kids are awesome. So this series is really just for me, okay? All right? It's okay to laugh. It's okay to have fun in church, all right? And so listen, here's what we believe as Christians, right? We believe that God, being a good God, created the heavens and the earth. And so we see this in the book of Genesis. We see that the book of Genesis teaches that this creation account is much different than anything else. The Babylonian, the Egyptian account teaches that multiple gods come together and they sort of spun creation like a top and then they stepped back from it. But in the Christian worldview, we believe that our God spoke it into existence and was intimately involved in the creation. And the apex of this God's creation. I mean, think about this. This is mind-blowing. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Before there was nothing, there wasn't something. Before there was nothing, there was someone. And before there was nothing, there wasn't just someone, but there was a relationship. God the Father interacted with God the Son. God the Son made much of God the Father. The Holy Spirit makes much of God the Son. And almost in a way, C.S. Lewis called it the cosmic dance, that their love for one another literally spilled out on the canvas of creation. And the apex, the apex of God's creation, not the Milky Way, not Mars, not the Sun, but let us create man in our own image and likeness. And so theologians call this the Imago Dei, that you and I are created in the image and likeness of God, mind, body, and soul. That's the reason why your dog doesn't sit around and ponder life's deepest questions, right? And your cat for sure doesn't do that, okay, right? Your cat's scheming in the house to do something, you know? And what we understand about the creation account is that God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, a choice, Because in order to really have a relationship and to have love, there has to be choice, right? God didn't zap his creation to be robots to love him. And he said, all of this is yours. But do not eat of this tree the knowledge of good and evil. Don't don't eat of that. That's, That's mine. And by the way, God's permission far outweighs his restriction because he told them not to have one thing but said everything else could be yours. And we see that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rather than obey God, chose to be God themselves. And they went around God. And sin enters into humanity. And so that's the problem with everything in the world, right? Whether it is a war, whether it is a mass shooting, whether it is this or that, fundamentally what we understand is that humanity is broken on the inside. Philosophy, science, mathematics, a Tesla car, nothing has solved this problem yet, right? Humanity is broken, but God in his goodness and in his kindness does not abandon his creation, but yet pursues after it. And we see after page after page of the Bible, the prophets stand up and say, God is going to fix this. God is going to come and he is going to fix this. 
And then in steps Jesus into human history. And we see that Jesus lives. Isn't it awesome? We're not even 10 minutes into the sermon. We've got gospel, baby. You know what I'm saying? Jesus lives the life we couldn't live. Dies the death that you and I deserved. And opens up the pathway back to God. So now we're not only forgiven of our trespasses and our sins and our rebellion, but we're also rewarded. It's not just that God does away with our past, but rather he writes our future. Jesus takes on what we deserved and gives us what he now has. You say, Jason, why do you say all this? Because, listen to me, the purpose of this letter is to show us how the gospel frees us to forgive others. That if we as Christians would meditate and marinate on the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of our God, that changes the way that we interact with people. That changes relationships. That changes the issue of forgiveness. One commentator put it this way, Paul pondered the meaning of grace, the cross, and the nature of salvation in other books of the Bible. In other epistles, he wrote about the meaning of the cross for Christian living. In this epistle, he demonstrated that he understood the implications of the gospel. Apart from personal salvation, nothing equals Christ's likeness in attitudes and actions like forgiveness. The gospel demands it. And in the epistle to Philemon, Paul demonstrates it. See, that's what I love about this. The gospel is not some ethereal concept. We don't just get our ticket punched and then go about our life. But it changes every avenue and aspect of our life. How we deal with our money, how we deal with each other. Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, if you find a perfect church, my dear brother or sister... Do not join it because you will ruin it. And he said it in a tongue-in-cheek way, and he meant this. We're all broken. So newsflash, the person you married is dysfunctional. Jerry Maguire lied to you. Don't nobody complete nobody. Okay, right? Right? Relationships are difficult. Life is hard. And what we're going to do each week is we are just simply going to put one foot in front of the other on the path to forgiveness. Now, I've been in the game long enough and I've been a pastor long enough to know what I'm asking some of you to do. I'm asking some of you to go to the area in your heart and the thing that happened to you that you have locked away thrown away the key and said, I will never revisit that because it is too painful. And all I'm asking is for your willingness to take Jesus' hand on this journey. I'm not saying at the end of this series, you're going to go, wow, everything's great and I don't struggle with unforgiveness anymore. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is this, that Jesus is willing to walk this journey with you. And here's what you will find out. The hardest area in your life and the area that you have shut away and the area that you often do not let Jesus into is the area that he wants to go with you. Because he knows in the deepest, darkest moments of your life, that's where the greatest amount of grace will be found. So some of you are going to be dealing with some hard things. 
And I know what I have to do. I have to appeal to you selfishly, right? To go, well, where am I at in this letter? And why does this matter to me? Well, think about it. Have you ever been hurt before? Have you ever been sinned against? And when someone hurts us in a relationship and we're dealt with this issue of forgiveness and unforgiveness, two things happen. Number one, somebody takes something from you that you did not give them permission to take. Innocence, trust, love. And then they gave you something that you didn't ask for. Hurt, bitterness, and hardship. So if you're someone who's been hurt, congratulations, you're Philemon. You're in this letter. But oftentimes when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about somebody has hurt me. And we're so selfish that even when we try to deal with the issue of forgiveness, we're still very self-centered. Oftentimes, there's not a lot of help for people who have done the sinning against, the sinner, the transgressor. And maybe you're somebody who's hurt somebody, lied, and done something in your life that has marked you forever. You feel like you wear a scarlet letter. And the shame and the guilt are shackles in your life. Well, congratulations, you're Onesimus. And you're going to get principles in this letter as well. And then some of you who live in the, you know, leave it to beaver family and are not either one of those people, okay? You're like, well, man, I don't deal with any of that. I'm fine. You probably have a family member or a coworker or that situation where you tend to be the person stuck in the middle. Like, oh man, Thanksgiving is super awkward and I have to sit between these two people because if not, it will be UFC at Thanksgiving, right? You're the Apostle Paul, the one who moves in and is a reconciler. And listen, contrary to popular belief, Your neighbor's responsibility is your responsibility as a believer in Christ. Love your neighbor as yourself. We as Christians don't live life in boxes and in categories and go, well, they got a lot of problems, but that ain't none of my business. Wrong, wrong. That is not true in the covenant community. So each week we're going to learn a principle on the path of forgiveness. Just one principle that's applicable that we can put one foot in front of the other. Listen, I'm not asking for you to deal with every single problem, every single hurt, everything like that. I'm just asking you to be willing to walk the journey. And the first one that we're going to understand, when I was studying and looking at this letter, it's 25 verses in the English language. It's only a couple hundred words in the Greek. And when I was looking at this and reading this letter... The first seven verses strike me as odd because he doesn't talk about any of the situation in the first seven verses. The Apostle Paul, listen, this is my whole sermon, so if you miss this, like, come back next week and maybe it's good for you then, okay, right? That's all I got, okay? The Apostle Paul uses one-third of the letter to not address the issue. William Tyndale, one of the fathers of the Reformation, and the reason why you have an English Bible in your hand, he's known as the man who gave God an English voice, who was burned at the stake for translating the scriptures, said it this way. The appeal is organized in a way that's prescribed by ancient Greek and Roman teachers. The first step that he does is he builds a relationship to persuade the mind. And then he moves to the emotions The name Onesimus, the transgressor, is not mentioned until almost the end of the letter and when the relationship has been established. 
And the appeal or the command to forgive is stated near the end of the section to persuade the mind. Translation. Here's, listen, I believe this is massively important. And if it's too simple for you, I'm a simple man. I need the jelly on the bottom shelf. But listen, we're going to get to the issue. We're going to get to the hurt. We're going to understand the handles as to how to bitterness, forgiveness, and all of that. But before we do that, the first step on the path to forgiveness before addressing what is wrong, we have to stop and first acknowledge what is right. You're like, that's all you got, preacher? I'm, that's it. That's all I got. Because I believe that... So, so when we come to deal with issues, our personalities come out. So psychologists would say you have one of three reactions when it comes to conflict, hurt, and forgiveness. Fight, Flight or fright, right? So fight. Some of you are like, conflict? Bring it on. Good, I didn't eat all my breakfast today. I can take a little more conflict, right? Let's deal with all of this, right? You have issues far above and beyond anything else we'll deal with, okay? So some of you guys are like, oh, I'm all good with that, you know, fight. And then some of you are fright. You're like, conflict. Oh, I don't know what to do. This is really awkward right now. I'm peeing down my leg. I have no, ah, ah, conflict, ah, 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 right, Utah, right? And then some of you are flight. Some of you are like, oh, did someone say conflict? Good. See ya. I'm out of here. And I will never address these issues in my life. And please don't ask me to because I'm never going to do it, right? And the Apostle Paul, we can learn from the aged apostle because he says the first step that you take on this path is going to determine the end result. We're going to get to it. But before we deal with everything that's wrong, and I don't know about you, but I need some good news in my life. Goodness gracious. With Facebook, Twitter, the internet, blogs, the news, everybody's got an opinion and everybody's negative about anything, right? Hey, how was the movie? Well, it was, eh, right? How was the meal? Well, the service was every, it's just negative, negative all the time. And listen, if we start to deal with the issues in your life with the glasses and the lens of negativity, we will end with negativity. But the Apostle Paul says, let's stop first. Stop here. And let's address what's right. And I see three areas that he addresses that are right. The first thing is this, the right people. you got to have the right people. There are right people in your life. One thing that strikes you about this letter is the amount of names that are in it. Paul, a prisoner, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, a fellow worker. And look at the names that he describes. Philemon, a fellow worker. Acrippus, our fellow soldier right? You're my down boy. You're my soldier. You're my, like, if I'm going to be mentioned in the Bible, I'm going to be mentioned as Paul's soldier ride or die, man, right? You're my boy, Blue. I love you, man, you know? And then later on, he talks about other names. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. Luke, my fellow workers. Look at the type of people that Paul surrounds himself with. You know, it's no coincidence that great people are great people because they surround themselves with great people. And this is a biblical concept. The Apostle Paul would say later on in 1 Corinthians, an issue of false teaching, he tells them this in 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived, bad company, not the band, bad company ruins good morals. We teach our kids this, right? Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, why would you as an adult think it's any different? 
when you're dealing with issues of hurt and forgiveness and bitterness in your life, who are you surrounding yourself with? Here's what I'm trying to say. The right path requires and involves the right people. It does. I heard somebody say this week, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Right? They teach this in recovery. They teach this everywhere. But for some reason, when it comes to like this idea of forgiveness, we think Cupid's going to shoot us with an arrow and everything's going to be fine and we're not going to have to deal with any work. So I know what you're asking. Do I have these people in my life? Well, I'm going to go through some questions and you need to ask yourself, are these people in my life? And it comes straight from the text. Do I have these people in my life? First one, am I surrounded by people who challenge and correct me? Because look at what he says. He says, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier in the church in your house. So if I described a guy as being my fellow soldier, soldiers go to war. And sometimes when you're in war, you have to be told what to do even if you don't like it. Is that a fair? I mean, I'm not making that. That's probably a fair logical conclusion, right? And so what society tells you now is all conflict is bad. Oh, all conflict is bad because everybody is a snowflake sprinkled in glitter who needs a cupcake and four stars next to their name. And oh, no conflict in your life. Don't ever let anybody ever speak to you, right? But there's a good challenge because listen, all change, all change starts at either a crisis or a conflict. That's true in life. The reason why you bought the Planet Fitness membership is because you looked in the mirror one day and went, oh, Lord, (laughs) crisis right here, right? You're like Kramer on Seinfeld, oh, man, right? Crisis. You changed your budget because you looked at the bank account and went, crisis, we got a problem here, right? Am I surrounded by people who challenge and correct me? Listen, those are real friends, who love you enough to say, listen, I don't have this figured out and I'm not coming this direction with you. All I'm saying is, if you continue down this road, it's going to end in death. Maybe physical death, but definitely relational, financial, spiritual. Are you surrounded by people who will do that in a loving way for you? Because I see that Paul does that. The second thing is this, am I surrounded by people who help me with my biblical worldview. Now, I I chose every word in that very specifically because, look, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. So here's what I mean by biblical worldview. Even if you're a non-Christian, you have to understand that you have a worldview. And I know you're going to hate it. You've got to agree with the preacher, but just let it slide. Everybody views the world through certain lenses. So for some of you, you think philosophy is going to be the key to that. You think science is going to be the key to that. Politics are going to be the key to that. The problem is time has proven every one of those to be wrong. And we as Christians view every situation in our life through the lens of the Scriptures. So at Westside, we say often we view the Bible like this, above us. 
Not equal with us to where we can leave some things out. Definitely not below us where we can just totally do away with some things, but rather above us. So let's break it down. Let's say um, prodigal child. You're a parent and you have a prodigal child. And you seek advice from someone. Are you going with Dr. Phil and his mustache? Or are you going with someone who says, man, I don't, I don't know and I have that all figured out, but... Maybe we can look the story of the prodigal son and the father heart of God and the grace and the truth and you're struggling in your marriage, right? And, and, and you know what they call people who are struggling in their marriage? M- married. It's okay, right? We can take off the mask in church. And you're struggling in your marriage and you go to Cosmopolitan Magazine for insights, or do you go to another older couple who said, you know, we, I don't know, we've walked this journey, but, man, I can't get away from what Paul says, that husbands love your wives as Christ. A biblical worldview. Are you surrounded by those people who are going to do that? And then lastly, am I surrounded by people who speak life into me? Oh, man. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the heart's of the saints have been refreshed through you. Listen, do you have someone in your life or are you someone in someone's life who maybe just sends a text message, a Facebook message, or a phone call? And listen, this is all it takes. Hey, I was praying today and you came up in my mind. I want you to know you're loved you're cared for, and you matter. Like, how difficult is that? Like, like we try to make this following Jesus thing massively difficult. And when you breathe life into someone like that, do you understand how someone's day and the trajectory of their day could change from a moment like that? Because, listen, if you're going to walk this path that sometimes is going to be treacherous, dark, and dangerous when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, you're going to need people that are going to encourage you and to speak life into you. The Apostle Paul says that there are the right people. And I love what this verse in Proverbs says. It says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Do you know what that means? The Bible says, listen, we have a wrong view on friendship. Biblically, friendship is not something that defines you, right? I'm a member here, I hang out with them here, I eat here, I do this. So we think other people define us. That's a product of our sinfulness. The Bible says that biblical friendship doesn't define you, but rather should refine you. As iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another. Have you ever seen a blacksmith sharpen iron before? Sparks fly. It's rough and it's tough and it's difficult. But the Bible says the people that will speak life into you and sometimes say something to you that hurts in the moment, because quite frankly in that moment we love our sin more than we love truth, but the people that do that, oh, they are way more valuable than yes people in your life. And you've got to have them. I told you about a story a couple weeks ago. My wife was faced with an issue, and she said, I was sitting there in the van, and in one moment, I realized I could call only one of two types of people. I could call one person that would just get down in the ditch with me, 
Oh, and we could go, I can't believe they did. And she said, what? And, oh, girl, you got to just, mm, and this is what we need to do. I mean, I'll go over there right now. I'll see if his car's there, right? I mean, like, oh, you know, just get down, do all types of stuff. And, oh, man, that feels good because you're right, man. And, woo, right? Or instead of calling someone who will tell me what I want to hear, I can call someone who will challenge me and tell me what I need to hear. And listen, in that moment, it is detrimental who you have surrounding you. And the Apostle Paul says, in order before you address what's wrong, you have to stop and acknowledge what's right. And you have to have the right people. But the second thing is this, you have to have the right perspective. You have to view this thing a certain way. And I get this from the very first verse. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. And then look at the rest of what he says. He's like all happy and stuff. He's like, yep, I'm in jail. I might die. But praise be to God for Lord. It's like, oh, you're like, what is going on? And, and, and listen, if anybody could probably snap out and get a get-out-of-jail-free card on someone who's had a bad day, this letter could be like four sentences. And I feel it sometimes as a pastor, right? Paul could write this letter and go, Paul, I'm in jail. Stop being idiots in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. He could get by with that, couldn't he? Right? He's got some stuff on his plate, you know? But he doesn't. He says, I hear what's going on in the church. You're growing, people are coming to know the Lord. Paul doesn't view the situation from only his lens. He changes his perspective. This is actually scientifically a game changer. They call it a paradigm shift. Many of you know the name Stephen Covey. He wrote the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you're a business person and teacher, you probably read it. But one of the things that he talks about of the seven habits that's highly effective is people who are able to have a paradigm shift. And he tells a story. It's very famous. He was in New York City in Manhattan. He was riding on a subway. And so he got on the subway. It was a very, very long day. He had his New York Times, and he was just ready to read the newspaper. A couple stops had gone by, and a gentleman and his two kids got onto the subway. And from the moment that the kids got onto the subway, they were extremely loud. They were just rambunctious. They were causing all types of stuff. And every stop, he thought, oh, please, please let them get off. They don't get off. They don't get off. And then finally, it's, you know, it's that moment that we've all been around, like, and someone's looking at the parent, and they're looking at the kid, looking at the parent, looking at the kid, looking at the, like, you want me to help him spank you for you? Like, looking at the parent, look at the kid, right? And you're doing all of that. And then he said, finally, one of the kids, they were wrestling and got pushed into his newspaper and tore his newspaper. And he looked at the dad, and he said, hey, um, do you need any help with your kids? And the man just kind of snapped out of a daze and said, I'm sorry, do what? And he said, do you need any help with your children? They're a little bit disruptive right now. And the man looked at Stephen Covey and said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We've, we've been at the hospital for the past couple of days, and their mother, my wife, just passed away. And I'm struggling how to tell them I'm, I'm sorry. Stephen Covey says this, Can you imagine what I felt at that moment? 
My paradigm shifted. Suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw things differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with the man's pain. Feeling of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your, your wife just died. Their mother just died. I'm, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do for you? You see, everything changed in an instant because my perspective changed. And listen, I know what I'm asking you. I think oftentimes we fear the path of forgiveness and actually to release that burden because we've been the victim and we've been hurt so long that it's our identity now. This is who I am. This is how I deal with stuff in my life. And if I give that over to Christ, who will I be? That's why oftentimes addicts know they're addicts. They, they hate the disease, but they've been it so long and their families viewed them that way for so long that they're fear. Listen, they're not fearful of failure. They're fearful of success because they don't know who they're going to be anymore. And the same is true of us in this issue and our perspective. And so maybe... Maybe, I'm just asking you, I'm asking if you're willing to do this. Have you looked at the issue from the other person's perspective? Have you looked at it through a biblical lens? Have you tried to remove yourself out of the center in order to see things differently? What do you think Jesus meant when he said, pray for those who hurt you. Bless those who persecute you. Because when we start to do that, the ice that is surrounding our heart and the hardness that is there, it begins to soften. I'm not saying it happens overnight. I'm not saying it becomes any easier. All I'm saying is it's one foot in front of the other. Because before we address what's wrong, and it's coming, we're going to do that. Paul does that. Before we address what's wrong, we have to stop and we have to acknowledge what's right. So it's the right people. It's, it's the right perspective to see this rightly. But I know what you're asking. How? How? Well, Paul gives us this. It, it's the right process. How do we... Where do I start, Jason? I mean, the divorce was so brutal, I've, I don't even know where to begin. The abuse defined me at such a young age, I don't even know where to start. What I see is, is, is a right process, and, and he starts with this. First, it's, it's thankfully. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Thankfully? What do I thank God for? Well, well, I think that's the problem. We've dealt with the issue of unforgiveness and the issue for so long or have not dealt with it that the negativity has crept into every area that we're blinded as to what we could actually be thankful for. Like, how about this, okay? And I'm going to count to three, and at the end of three, I just want everyone to take a deep breath. Okay, you're in the sermon now. Do you, do you have your part? Are you ready for this? Okay, ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Maybe thankful for that. 
I'm not asking for Mount Everest right now. I'm just asking for one foot in front of the other and simple things. And it might be so difficult and there might be so much that's wrong that the only thing that you can thank God for is the breath. But praise God, you got something to be thankful for. And so he starts with, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. The second thing, thankfully and then prayerfully. Thank you in my prayers because of I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. Listen, it's, it's not rocket science. Prayer is very difficult. It's a spiritual discipline that always crawls off the table. It's something we always have to come back to. But fundamentally, think about prayer this way. Piper Graham, our youngest, is the one who, um, she's just now starting to learn to talk and stuff like that, and she knows the word no better than any of the other words. I don't you know, right? Probably because I tell her that more than anything else, right? But when babies, before they begin to communicate, actually their brain is so advanced that they know what they need, they just can't tell you that. So how do babies tell you what they need? They cry all the time, right? That's their way of communicating, And maybe for you in the path to forgiveness is you crying a little bit and asking, God, I need something. It's just simply communicating, I don't have this. I don't have this. And it's okay. God doesn't expect you to have it. He expects you to cry out to Him in order for Him to take your hand to walk the journey to get you to the destination. But it's not just begrudgingly, okay? I'm so heartbroken over so many Christians who look like they were baptized in lemon juice. Right? I love Jesus, but I'm mad about it, and the world's coming to an end, right? Mm-mm, right? These young whippersnappers. I... Right? Do you love Christ? Man, alive. I don't want anything to do with that, Jesus. It's not just begrudging. And that's my fear in this series. I don't want you to just have to do things because it's begrudging. I want you to have a passion for Christ. Listen, you're not going to be able to forgive unless you love Christ. Is Jesus beautiful to you? Oh, my sin that held him there. It's this idea that it's not just to forgive, but it's to love God and to delight in God. It's not a duty, it's a delight. Christians are not people who do things out of duty. Christians are people who do things out of delight because I love Christ. There's no way you're going to be able to offer the grace, the forgiveness, and the mercy to a person who has hurt you unless you understand the grace and the mercy that Christ has given you. Because before you forgive someone of what they've done to you, you have to understand you were first the transgressor to God. Yes, the other person is guilty, but you were. You stood condemned. But it was His grace that washed over you. So it's joyfully is the last thing. And I see, what look what Paul says in verse 7. For I have derived... Much joy and comfort from your love. Do you know what Paul is saying? Paul's saying, I didn't have the joy. I didn't have the love. But you did. And you gave it to me. 
So listen, it's okay if you don't have it right now because God is doing a thousand things that you're unaware of. Like right now, you are hurtling through space on a spinning ball around a fiery gas that could blow up at any moment. Did you know you were aware of that? You had no idea, did you, right? Question, did God ask your opinion when he created the Milky Way? So why does he need your help right now? So yes, you don't have it, but it's okay because God's doing a thousand other things and there is someone, oh, I believe in God's sovereignty today, that there is somebody else who's already walked a path and already gone through something and they have your joy. They have that for you. It's okay if you don't have it. So before we address what's wrong, can we just stop and lift our hands and acknowledge what is right The band's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. But here's what I want you to do. You have some homework. How crazy would it be if you heard the sermon and applied it on Monday? Would that be nuts? That would be crazy, right? You have an insert in your bulletin. And it has Philemon 1, verses 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. So here it is. Step number one, principle number one on the path to forgiveness. This week, I want you to spend time thanking God for all the right stuff in your life. Could you do that? Could you go, wow, I've been, I've been so wrapped up in this issue and I've been so defined in this issue that I haven't realized I've got this going on and that going on and God's grace. And a couple years ago, that thing happened and it could have been so much worse, but it wasn't. And God has still sustained me now. Listen, one of the key things to see and understand God's faithfulness for the future is to look and see what God has done in the past and to see how he has sustained you. So this week, you're just going to thank God for what is right before we address what is wrong. And we're going to get to that. But here's one thing that we're going to do at the end of every sermon during through the series on the book of Philemon. We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. And I want you to have it through a whole new perspective. Because when we get to that one line about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I just want that to wash over you. The first time that we say it in just a moment, you might say it with gritted teeth. That's okay. But towards the end of the series, as we begin to just continue to say it over and over and over and over, I'm just praying that the Spirit of God would just speak into your heart. Maybe already during this sermon, God's already prompted you. And listen, I haven't said your name. That's the Spirit of God doing something in this place. We believe in that. And then we're going to come to the table. Because on the night that he was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. Eat it and take. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. You see, on the step and path to forgiveness, you've got to understand you're not first dealing with the person that's transgressed against you. You are first the transgressor against God. And oh my, when you understand that grace and that truth, it changes everything. So stand right where you're at. This prayer will be on the screen.
And as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we also pray. Let's say this out loud together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and I believe through the proclamation of your word and through the power of your spirit that marriages will be restored that relationships will be brought back to life, that hard hearts will be softened. And I believe that there will be individuals who have been carrying around a backpack of weights, burden, shame, guilt that has shackled them. And God, may it be today, may it be in the weeks to come that they will finally for the first time release that and lay it down at Calvary at the feet of Jesus and say it's much too heavy for me to bear. I was never made to bear it anyway. And may as we come to these tables and sing these next songs, may we sing thankfully, may we sing prayerfully, may we sing joyfully. Because before we get to the issues at hand, we simply come before you and we acknowledge what is right. We acknowledge that you are good and that your ways are the best. Have your way with us. We pray this all in the mighty And in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you come and partake in communion as you feel led today?